May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. So it is still the season of Easter. The season of Easter, which we're still in, is the 49 days between Easter Sunday and Pentecost. Pentecost marks the beginning of a new season in the church's calendar, which is the 50th day, which is where the word Pentecost comes from, 50. Easter is a time for us to reflect on what resurrection means for us today, what it means for us to live resurrected lives. Resurrected lives. Resurrected from what, as Janet asked a few weeks ago. For the most of the last five years, I've been saying on and off that too often Christians have thought that the point of Christianity is getting into heaven. That resurrection then becomes something that happens way in the future after we die. But I've been saying that from a biblical point of view, the point of Christianity is not so much about getting into heaven, but is about God's honouring of the eternal covenant with this world and with humanity. That in Jesus that promise is fulfilled and humanity is restored and creation renewed. Or as St. Augustine of Hippo said, in Jesus we are reminded of who we are, that we are made in the image of God, in the image of God's love and compassion which resides in the heart of each of us. And when we live out that love and compassion, creation is renewed. Resurrection begins then, not sometime in the future, but now. And it begins when, when we are freed from the death of worshipping the false idols that lead away from that compassion and love. The idols, the false idols of power, the false idols of wealth and security, of placing ourselves first. To help us explore all of this, the lectionary writers have offered us a variety of passages over the last few weeks from John's Gospel, particularly passages that help us into some of the big themes in John's Gospel. So two weeks ago we explored the really big theme of life, eternal life, abundant life. Again, we keep thinking eternal life is something in the future, but for the Gospel writers, particularly for John, eternal life was something that started now. It goes on into eternity, but its beginning, its origins are now. When we are, as St. Augustine of Hippo said, when we remember who we are, that we are made in the image of God. And we met that theme again last week when we explored what Jesus might have meant when he said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. There's that word, life, again. And this week we continue to hear Jesus' last words to his disciples, which is why we have the uh, picture of the Last Supper. All of this, last week and this week, is set in Jesus' final conversation with his disciples, which has so many layers to it. There is the layer in the, in the literature itself, which is these are the most important words, these are the farewell words, these are the words by which this person should be judged. But from a story point of view, these are the words of Jesus to his disciples who are freaking out. Less than a week earlier, they'd entered Jerusalem kind of 
thinking they might end up dead, but also it seemed to be going quite well and kind of hoping that maybe, maybe it will turn out better and God's kingdom will be restored. And here they are on the Thursday night with Jesus washing their feet and saying, I'm about to die. One of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to deny me. It's all tumbling down. And so at a very human level, at a very story level, these are Jesus' words of encouragement to their very real question, how will we live once you are gone? How will we survive? And so Jesus speaks to them words of encouragement. And this week, we hear one of the great themes that is introduced first in the prologue of John, the theme of abiding or living in. We hear of God the Father abiding in Jesus, Jesus abiding in God the Father, Jesus abiding in us, and we abiding in Jesus. So much abiding. What might be understand with all this abiding? One of the things we keep forgetting about Jesus and the disciples and even the gospel writers is that they were Jews. We kind of slough off their Judaism and pretend they were like us. But they were nothing like us. They were Second Temple Jews. And so the world they lived in and how they saw the world was through the eyes of Second Temple Jews. And it has been suggested that that colours how they understood all of this abiding and much of how they understood what Jesus was on about. It has been suggested this abiding has a lot to do with the Shekinah or the glory of God, the presence of God in the temple. So to understand that we have to tell the story of God's presence in the temple. And to do that we have to go back to the Exodus. When God honoured the covenant he made with Abraham, that Abraham would have many descendants, even though at that point he was childless, and that those descendants would be blessed to be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. They, might, they would be the means by which God's promise to all people and to creation would be honoured. And so we jump forward to the time of Moses when the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt and God chose Moses to lead the people out of slavery into the promised land. And the glory of God, the Shekinah of God, then accompanied those people first as a pillar of cloud by day and then a pillar of fire by night. And that presence led the people through the wilderness and when they eventually claimed the land and they were given the Torah to show them how to live in the presence of God, we keep thinking that the Torah, the law of God, is something we need to obey so we can get to God. But actually the Torah was given when God lived in their presence, in their midst, already there. It was, how do we live with God in our midst? And how do we live as people blessed to be a blessing? And from that time, the glory of God resided in the temple, first of all, in the tent of the tabernacle. And then when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the Shekinah of God dwelt in the Holy of Holies in the midst of the temple. 
But over time and even during that time, the people forgot God and they forgot who they were. They forgot that they were blessed to be a blessing for all people. And they worshipped the false gods of, of power and greed and wealth. They put the Torah to one side. The powerful enslaved the poor, forgetting that they had all once been slaves in Egypt. And they either ignored the aliens or they treated them with contempt. Kind of sounds like today, really. We haven't got much further down the track. The result for the people of God was that in the end both kingdoms fell. And eventually Jerusalem was destroyed, as was the temple. The people were taken into exile and the Shekinah or glory of God left the temple and left the land. In some ways that exile ended when Ezra and Nehemiah returned. In some ways the exile ended when the temple was rebuilt. But for many Jews the exile never ended. Because the Shekinah or the glory of God never returned to the temple. And while, the, while Herod's rebuilding of the second temple was magnificent, and by all accounts it was magnificent, and while the priests pretended that all was as it should be, most people knew that God was not present. The glory of God was not in the Holy of Holies. And the people longed for the day when the glory of God would return. When God would once again be among the people and Israel would be blessed to be a blessing. Which brings us to John and his great prologue. Because the prologue makes it clear that the glory of God had returned in the person of Jesus. This time... Not in the temple, but in a person, a human, Jesus of Nazareth. This man, Jesus, is the long-awaited return of the glory of God. In Jesus, the exile is over. So when John has Jesus say that he abides in the Father and the Father abides in him, he is saying that he is the Shekinah of God. He is the glory of God. He is saying that in him the covenant is fulfilled, that Israel is restored, and through Israel humanity is restored and creation will be renewed. But Jesus goes further. He says to his bewildered and grief-stricken disciples, I will abide in you, and if I abide in you, my Father will abide in you. Or, put it another way, you too will be the glory of God. In you resides the glory of God, the Shekinah. Just think about that for a moment. You and I are where the Shekinah of God resides. What an amazing gift! What an amazing responsibility. Fortunately, Jesus says that he will spend the spirit of truth to be our advocate, to be our supporter and guide. The King James Version translated that as comforter. 
which we take to mean, you know, somebody who puts their arm around us and says they're there, but actually the Greek is far more like sticking a sword up our backside and motivating us into action, which is how it's translated in the Bayou Tapestry, showing William the Conqueror, as he was called then, not his other name, uh, sticking a sword up his troops, going, King William comforteth his troops. So what is this truth, the spirit of truth? What is meant by that truth word? I think this is another word that we can often get into trouble with because it's a word for us that now means objective fact. You can establish that by scientific evidence and then if you've done that, it's truth. Although Donald Trump is kind of changing how we understand that word. The Greek word which is translated into the English as truth is aletheia. Ali, aletheia. Aletheia. Get there in the end. Aletheia. It's kind of two words. Lethia is the main word and a is the kind of prefix that kind of changes its meaning. And the word lethia is derived from the word leith, which for those of you who know your Greek mythology, is the river that the people who resided in Hades drank from in order to forget, to forget the past. The letter A at the front of this changes it to the opposite. And so the word Alethea, truth, is the opposite from drinking from the leaf so that you can forget. Truth then is when we remember, when we are woken up, when we overcome the oblivion and stupor that the river Leith gives us. It has a sense of being alive and vital, not being deceived by false ideas or desires, seeing what is as it actually is. So when Jesus says the spirit of truth is coming and will be given to each of us to reside within us, he is saying that we will wake up with this spirit of truth. We will remember, which is, I think, where St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, one one of the reasons why he talked about the Christ event being about being the way that God helped us remember who we are that we are made in the image of God. And in fact, he wrote a whole book about that. He is one of the first writers of psychology. And he wrote the psychology of remembering to show how the crucifixion is the point at which we remember. The spirit of truth then overcomes the oblivion and stupor that we have been living in and allows us to be alive and vital, allows us to not be deceived by false ideas or desires, allows us to see what is as it actually is. So today Jesus says that not only do we abide in the risen Christ and the risen Christ abides in us, but the spirit of truth will wake us up from our forgetting of who we are. 
The spirit of truth will remind us that we are made in the image of love. Will remind us that we are the glory of God present in this world. In our communities. In our families. And when we remember, we will be resurrected. Resurrection starts now. And so I began this morning by wondering, what is resurrected life? Resurrected life is when we remember who we are. Resurrected life is when we live the way of God. Resurrected life is when we embrace that glory, that the glory of God resides in each one of us. This morning Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. Shortly before this and shortly after this, Jesus gave one command. Love one another as I have loved you. And he showed that by washing his disciples' feet. Sometimes we can place so many demands, so many ideas about what keeping Jesus' commands are. But he kept it pretty simple. Love. When we love, then we live resurrected lives. So I invite you to spend a moment or two to consider what it means to be reminded that the glory of God resides within each one of us. And how do we live this out? Which seems to me to be the big question. How do we live that out?